Welcome everyone to The Numbers Don't Lie, a multimedia live production. In this podcast series, we'll be letting the numbers do the work around analyzing the trends in this year's elections and supporting the work done by Paul Berkowitz. Um, Paul is a data analyst um, digging into the uh, the nitty-gritty of the numbers around these elections and what they mean, how to, how to interpret them. And uh, this, these uh, these podcasts will support the stories that he'll be making around the around these numbers. Um, I'm your host, Scott Peter Smith, I'm the head of multimedia here at TISO. And uh, you can find these podcasts under Multimedia Live on the iono.fm platform or just have a look on the Times Live website. Uh, Paul, to, to, uh, to start off, why don't you just tell us what EDGES stands for? It stands for Economic Development Geospatial Information Systems. So you can see where we, we try to turn it into an acronym mm, and nice. make it sound like a real word. No, it works. Paul, I don't know if you want to take a minute and just tell us a little more about yourself. So I've been running EDGES for almost five years. And my background is in economics and mathematics and stats and all of that really exciting, sexy stuff that sets the world on fire. But in all seriousness, my background is that quantitative, research-driven, analytical stuff. And until about five or six years ago, just before the company was formed, a lot of the research was done, I guess what you'd say, in a conventional way. You'd get information or you'd you'd read um, research articles and look at information in tables and spreadsheets. And then from there, prepare reports and research and the visualizations or the storytelling that you do around the data would be conventional charts, bar charts, line graphs, the kind of things you'd see in the financial journals and things like that. A lot of the listeners here won't really know what what data we use or or even how we would apply it in the, in the context of data journalism. So in a sense of like data and elections 101, what kind of what kind of stuff are we looking at or can we expect in the next over the next few weeks um, from yourself? I mean, what is election data? How are you using it? Specifically election data, when you think about it, you think about things like actual election events. So previous general elections or by-elections. That's one of the main sources. And that would come from a place like the IEC, the Electoral Commission. So a recording of who voted for which party in which areas. But connected to that, there is what we call geospatial data. So it's data that exists geographically. It's data that describes a space or a point. So I'll give you an example. We, we, we do a lot of map making and cartography. And you can think of it in colloquial terms uh, as uh, if statistics and geography had a baby, then that baby would look hopefully something like the things we do. And there's three main kinds of what we call, without getting too technical, vector geometry. So there's what we call point data which is a point in the map. And that can be anything. It can be your house in latitude and longitude coordinates. It could be a school. It could be the TSO Blackstar offices. It could be the site of a political assassination, for example. Unfortunately, that's something which happens a lot. You've got line data. So that could be a taxi route or the route, let's say there was a protest or a march. You could trace that on a map. And that would be a line or a series of lines connecting dots. So, so just to just to illustrate a, this a little bit, give me an example of how you would make this work as a story. Like someone, someone, like a story someone would expect to see in you know in, in a news organization. They would they would read about that. How would you? 
what kind of stories can you draw from that kind of information? So let's build on that example. And again, it's an unfortunate example. It's an unfortunate political reality. But most of the listeners will have read something about this in the last couple of years. There have been a lot of political assassinations. What you could do, again, you could look at where the assassinations happened. You could you could pinpoint where uh, a person was unfortunately murdered, and you could represent that on a map. If you wanted to give the audience a kind of an idea of where these things are happening. And that's the advantage and the beauty of using maps to describe a lot of things, including elections, is that if you look at the information on uh, in a table or even on the printed page, you might not have a good idea of where things are happening. But if you lived in KZN or anywhere else in South Africa and you were able to graph, let's say, 100 or 200 political assassinations over the course of a few years, you could say, wow, there's a concentration in this area south of Durban or maybe here in this municipality. And that does two things. The, the using data visualizations and data science to tell stories does two things. Firstly, it can help you tell a better story. But again, it's like any kind of storytelling, whether it's writing or journalism, you'd need to work at it and make sure that you get better at telling stories. And the other thing is that it can help you to identify new leads for other stories. I'll give another example. If you have a spreadsheet of all the election results and you know a little bit of basic Excel and, and you can sort and filter the information, you can identify certain areas, wards, voting districts, municipalities, where the vote is very close between two or more parties. And that can already be a lead. You, you may have your journalism team that is there on the ground doing the research and you'll be able to direct them to where the stories may be interesting, where areas are closely contested, where getting a vox pop or an interview with... Uh, voters and constituents on the ground might tell you something more interesting than if you focused on an area which was heavily ANC or DA or EFF. I want to refer to something a little more on the, the political killing. So the after that information, I mean, there, there's something about data that get, that tells you a little bit more about a story than, than being there, like you, your traditional ways of doing journalism. As you have to, you're, you're being there, you're asking the questions, you're actually seeing what's going on around you. Something about data that gives you a kind of like a time arch of some sort um, mm. that you wouldn't normally see within, you know, doing doing the story directly. I mean, it's those kind of elements that I think we it'd be really nice to bring into our stories that we're doing at TISO and to, around the elections. And look at, yes, there's he, he said, she said type politics. Um, you know, we're covering what the parties are doing, we're covering what their manifestos say, but really, like, how much do the manifestos really apply to the data that tells us what they should be doing? Uh-huh. Those kind of those kind of questions. Is that is that something that you that you know data would help you with? It can, and without getting too meta or undermining my own sort of day-to-day nine-to-five job, the data can be a blessing and a curse. And maybe in uh, later on or in future episodes, we can talk about the shortcomings. But on one level, everything is data. Even an interview with a person on the ground is data. Of course, I get what you're saying, that there are facts which are more objective, and then there are things which are maybe more subjective. When a vote happens, this is the vote. It happened like this. X number of people voted this way. Y number of people voted that way. The fact should be incontrovertible. But often the way we interpret the facts is through our own subjective lens, which brings our own prejudices in there. 
and that's something to be careful of. If you do data, if you data correctly and rightly, you should be able to compensate for a lot of potential cognitive biases. You know, let's say you hate a particular party, then you'll have your cognitive biases that come in. If you you can claim to be following by-elections, but if you're only reading the results week to week, you'll focus on that party doing badly, and you'll go, "Aha, that's my confirmation bias." And when the party does well, you tend not to forget. You tend to forget about that, and that's a that's a human thing. If you clean it properly and you put it in a spreadsheet, then you should be able to eliminate some of those biases. But the way that you analyze things, you have to be careful all the time that you're not bringing your own prejudices and biases into things so out of the the data that that uh, that you have how the richness of data that we receive through the by-elections i mean now going back the IEC has quite a some pretty good i know they have some lots of really good uh, data that's publicly available yes out of that stuff how predictive can you get for these upcoming elections? That's a good question. And it's a question I get a lot. And it, it, it's often a variation on the, on the theme of what's the predictive value of by-elections? Um, I saw a by-election and this thing happened, so can I expect the same thing to happen in the elections? So I'll tell you from my personal experience and work, by-elections are useful, but I think they are—they have their limits, and you have to be very careful about how much you extrapolate from the by-election data. And again, like I said, this might be slightly subjective on my side, so I'll, I'll talk through very quickly the differences between by-elections and general elections, and then the listener can draw their own conclusion. Most general elections are universal, meaning that every part of the country votes at the same time. But when there's a by-election, it's it happens at one specific ward at a time, maybe five wards in a by-election day, maybe more, maybe less. So it's not universal, and it's not random, meaning it's not representative. What do I mean by that? The chance, the, the probability that Ward X or Ward Y will hold a by-election, it's not equal. If you look at the reasons for by-elections, um, and there's about five or six main ones, the councillor can die in office. That should be a random event, but unfortunately, as we know, sometimes there's, it's due to political assassination. And even so, maybe not all councillors have the same risk of dying in office. It can be because the councillor resigns or their membership is terminated from the party, and that's often an indicator that the councillor has jumped ship and is now batting for another um, party or is running as an independent. And it can happen when the council is dissolved or when the electoral commission said that this election that happened in the general election wasn't quite above board so we need to hold it again. But all of these things are normally indications of other things. There's a much higher probability that a by-election will be held in a municipality that was quite competitive where flipping one ward can actually change the whole control of the municipality. Where when a, a councillor is expelled from their party or they, or they, they resign from the party, it's often because, as I said, they're switching allegiance and that can itself indicate a degree of competition. So if you map by-elections over the last five or ten years, you'll see there's a much higher chance a by-election will happen in a municipality that was already competitive. What does that tell you? Let me take one step back. There's other things at play here. Um, When there's a general election, parties pour a lot of resources 
into contesting elections. When there's a by-election, it's often only the two or three big parties and maybe a regional party. So apart from the ANC, DA and EFF, sometimes it's another party that has a regional stronghold. But it's expensive to pour resources into a by-election and you don't have that in the background because of our um, our electoral system. You don't have that sort of proportional representation backstop. What do I mean? And we might get into the details at a later stage. A lot of small parties play what I call a, a shotgun approach or a spray and pray. They'll contest every ward in a general election because if you get a little bit of the vote here and there, it all gets put in the pot and you get you can stand to get one PR seat. You don't get that with a by-election. It's a win or lose. You either get everything or you lose. What did they say on that famous TV show? You either win or you die. I know, we're coming up to the final season of Game of Thrones, so it's, it's on my mind. When you play the game of elections. So all these things come into play and all these things differentiate a by-election from a general election. And you can extrapolate, you can use by-election results to to see um, as predictors, but you need to be careful that you don't rely too heavily on by-election results. So how would you describe the difference between what you do and a poll, for example? A poll? Yeah. Not another poll. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So... Pollsters, as they colloquially known, they get a bad name sometimes. Uh, I'm trying to think of the more popular ones in South Africa. We don't have as rich a history or a, a broad, um, deep industry as overseas yet, but it's growing. We've we've got at the moment the Institute for Race Relations does one. Afrobarometer did one, I think, last year. Ipsos Markinor still do poll, polls. What polling is, is it's a company will actually expend money to poll people. They'll phone them or they'll do a face-to-face questionnaire. And they'll ask them these questions. Who will you vote for in elections? When it's election polls specifically. But it can be anything. It can be market research. And that's a different set of skills. And that's a whole different set of resources. So we interpret the work of polls. But we don't do polls ourselves. We've thought about it. It's definitely something that's interesting. But it again, it would raise a whole bunch of... Um, issues about playing and being a referee you don't want to interpret your own poll but also historically i mean you find polls can often turn out to be very wrong they can so it kind of it leads to the question of okay in terms of you've got some hard numbers in front of you and from a spreadsheet that you get from either historical data or whatever the case may be but a poll and then you ask a poll um and yes it may or may not correlate with that data but then the actual election happens and you see the, the numbers after elections and often it's very wrong. I mean, you can only, you only, a famous example would be Trump in the States, for example. Mm-hmm. Obama mm-hmm. was very confident that Trump was going to go nowhere near the presidency. Right. Um, and it happened. So there's, Brexit. Yeah, so the, exactly. So there's these, there's these discrepancies between polls and actually harder data that I'm trying to see if there is a, a, a difference there or am I on the wrong track? You're not on the wrong track uh, and I'll talk about it a bit more. I'll, I'll, I'll take my tongue out of my cheek in a little bit Scott but you're right Poll, polling and pollsters got a very bad name after Brexit and after Trump's victory because apart from I think one or two outlets like 538 which I'm a big fan of which um, and 538 was not a, a polling company they were they did they do what we do they do it much better they've done it longer they've I, I highly recommend the site anyway we won't plug them too much now but they aggregated and interpreted all the different polls and at one point they said Trump had as much as a 30% chance of winning okay 
I want to talk about, to answer your question, what are the pros and cons of polls? What are the limitations? So there's a couple of problems with polls. Sometimes those problems are often, they're methodological. How was the poll conducted? How were the numbers interpreted? Um, how was the interpretation conveyed to the general public? And you can fall down at each of these steps, and you can fall down more than once. For example, the IRR, the Institute for Race Relations, I think that their stuff is some of the best out there, but it's not a very crowded field. There's a lot of room for improvement overall. As I understand, their methodology was to randomly generate phone numbers, you know, randomly, as in every number from naught to nine, and then call those numbers in that order, and then if they um, were able to get through and speak to the person, ask them the questions and poll them and say, who are you voting for? And there are issues there. I won't get into it now, but there, there are conceptual issues. Not everyone has a cell phone. Um, not all numbers have the same chance of being randomly generated. Um, what do you do? How do you take into account dropped calls and things like that? That's the methodological side. In general, their methodology wasn't bad. could always be improved. Then there's the issue of how do you interpret the numbers? And what the, I, the Institute of Race Relations did and other companies like Ipsos is they tried to allocate all undecided voters to a specific party. Now, in reality, only 70% of people turned out to vote in previous elections or 73, 76. So there is a full quarter, more than a quarter of registered voters who didn't vote on the day in all our previous elections. And it's possibly not a good idea to create an unnatural um, unrealistic election result because those people might not vote anyway. And in fact, if anything, people might not turn out, the, the turnout for this election might be even lower than historically. So to allocate undecided voters is problematic. But there are other problems. And the, here's the conceptual problems. Every poll, every opinion poll is a point in time. And every voter is human and people change their minds. So let's use a, a good example and cut through the gum. If I polled you three weeks ago, when we were in the middle of stage two, three, four load shedding, or someone else who was an erstwhile ANC voter, and I said, are you more or less likely to vote for the ANC? They probably would be less likely, because that, that bit us, it hit us where it hurts. If I polled the same people today, you, me, a random person, they probably have a much more favorable impression of the ANC because we haven't had any load shedding for the last two weeks and and that's how it goes people like, this comes back to the cognitive bias, people like to think that they're objective but we're not, we've done experiments if I ask you if you want a chocolate you're more likely to say yes if you haven't had breakfast than if you if you have had breakfast and it's, I know it sounds commonsensical and a little bit hokey but this is how it works, these are things we need to take into account and this leads back again to this issue of not making the data sacrosanct, understanding the meta issue and the bigger picture that how we ask a question, when we ask the question, is as important as who we're asking. Oh. So the numbers don't lie, basically. Numbers don't the interpretation all, does. The interpretation is often where we fall down is often the weak spot. And this can come to how things are modeled. Um, on our side, as a company... We try and build a probabilistic model, meaning that we r realize there's a degree of randomness. That even if we had numbers from yesterday in the world's best and most expensive poll and every single registered voter was polled, they might still change their mind tomorrow. So we model it along a, a, a random distribution. Now we're going back to first year stats. So I won't go into much detail, but we'll say if you said 
if your poll said that uh, 60% of people would vote for the ANC, we will say, okay, well, that's that's the last data point. That's a good place to start. But there's a random issue that there's a, a deviation from that 60%, maybe a little bit up, maybe a little bit down, so that on the day, the ANC is as likely to get 62% as they are 58% or anywhere along that range. They could be two percentage points better than the poll, two percentage points less. If we've made our assumptions right. Uh, so we talk about ranges, we talk about what's realistic. And on the one hand, that's to kind of cover your own behind. You know, if you say the ANC is going to get between 55 and 70 percent, you're more likely to be right than if you say the party will get 63 percent exactly. If you say the ANC will get naught to 100 percent, you can never be wrong. But you haven't added much to the debate. So, I mean, look, I'm looking forward in the, in the coming weeks to get, get into the nitty-gritty of all these issues that we've, uh, that we've discussed today. Um, I think uh, with each story that you do, we'll kind of get into the ins and outs of it and how we, how we extrapolate what you're, what, you're, what you're actually saying. Yes. But uh, I'm also interested just in closing, how, what sort of questions can we ask? So can we ask questions like in terms of influence, like, for example, what is the... What is the influence of the of the ZCC on the ANC, for example? Can we ask those kind of questions? The data do those kind of data sets exist? And if they do, what would what would really be the data in terms of that? Would we work on uh, who voted for who and where are they? Or it's a very good question. Like how do we? So I'm, I'm trying to sort of framework very quickly in terms yes. of the kind of questions we can answer using these sort of techniques that we've been going through. It's a very good question. So I'll talk very quickly. What are our limitations? We don't have a lot of the tools that other countries have. We don't have exit polls. Exit poll is where I come up to you with a clipboard after you've just voted. I say, hi, Scott, can I ask you a question? Or I phone you even 24 hours after election day. Maybe I don't harass you right outside the voting station. I say, hi, Scott, do you have two minutes? Can you tell me who you voted for? And that itself is not perfect. For example, uh, historically, people are more likely to say they voted for the winner because it's a bit embarrassing to say, well, I voted for the second or third place. But that's the human element as well. So we don't have uh, exit polls. So we don't and we don't have ongoing rich polls that happen frequently where the uh, people being polled are stratified by their race or their gender or their sex or their degree of education. We know in America that white women with a college degree voted for Trump, but then five months later their opinion of him had gone up or gone down. We don't have that. What we've got from the IEC after the elections is on a provincial level, how did how many people turned out to vote um, by age? And there's much more data, but that's not released because there's privacy issues. The IEC could tell you. They could match the ID number to the person. You could learn a lot. But they don't do that. Question about the ZCC. I can tell you anecdotally. I can tell you we don't have access to rich data sets, but we know the ZCC, for example, their base of operations is in Mpumalanga. And we know that the ANC historically has been strongest in Mpumalanga. In 2016, it was the only province where the party didn't lose a single municipality 
municipality. I didn't know that actually. It's true. I asked the question. People don't know. They, but I can tell you that in every single municipality, let me be accurate, they lost a majority in at least one municipality in every province. It was, you know, they don't have Midval in Gauteng. They lost Rustenburg in Northwest. There were two municipalities in Limpopo they lost for the first time. They lost Nelson Mandela in the Eastern Cape. But places like Bombela, like Nelspreit, the ANC won that municipality with 75 and 80 percent of the vote. Very strong there. Is that a spurious correlation? We'd need more data. So to answer your question, I should have given the short answer first, but I didn't. Sometimes we make an educated guess when the data is limited. As much, there's the science and the art. There's how do you fill in the gaps. And the best practice is obviously to make your assumptions explicit, to tell the reader or the client or um, the audience, we assume these things. We assumed them, we had a good reason to assume them because we looked at previous data and we made these calculations. If this assumption is wrong, this might be wrong. These are the things where we could be wrong. It does take a lot of bravery. Again, these are meta issues. It's, it's about, if you're a pollster, for example, if you're the Institute for Race Relations, you're being very brave because you've put a number onto it. You've put a very specific number. And as you said, if you're wrong, people can go back and say you're wrong. And I used to joke, uh, I don't like to make predictions because I hate being wrong, which is still true and only slightly funny. But we're at the stage where we have to make predictions. Yeah. Um, is the ZCC a factor? I think it is. Is it easy to measure the magnitude of that factor? Not really. Well, look, I mean, journalism, it's not uh, its not an exact science, you know. So, uh, yeah. but I mean, it, it, using these kind of data, is, I think, uh, from our perspective, I mean, it makes a really nice backbone to exploring new issues and exploring directions of a country, exploring uh, opinions about our country in various areas. And then, you know, of course, there's responses that come along with that. I mean, looking forward uh, over the next few weeks uh, to see what uh, see what comes out of what we're doing is, um, you know, for example, we won't get into the we won't get into the answer now. But for example, ESCOM, uh, ESCOM and their load shedding. I mean, are they load shedding more on in areas that uh, their constituents, <laughs> the ANC constituents, isn't isn't? I I don't think so. But I'm saying it's it's kind of a, it's a it's a joking example in, in mm. a way. But it's those kind of stories that you yeah. that you like. You can ask the question, and then you know there may be some there may be some uh, some data that I either uh, you know correlates with that or confirms it or you know. But even so, at the end of the day, it still creates an interesting story an interesting thought piece that you at least backing it up with some sort of real real research that you can that you can that you can pull from 100 percent. and yeah to answer i I know it's a joke um there's too the anc has got too many constituencies to avoid load shedding all of them but i have heard the conspiracy theories that hyde park doesn't get load shed because cyril's got family there or this place doesn't get load shed or that town doesn't get load shed there's one third point that i didn't talk about but i think it's a good place to kind of end off and to set the scene for the next few podcasts is that if data science is done properly data science data science it can be empowering it can be empowering for the journalist and the reader to learn things in another way it can be it can make a story more accessible because unfortunately people are less likely to read 1200 words than they are to click through an interactive map especially if it's well curated and and it's signposted and they know what they're supposed to do to get more information and we are in an age where 
the data storytelling the and the is is an, a very important and and a growing and is growing in importance as a as a component of overall storytelling how to get from get the story into the reader's brain as quickly as possible of course we've got fake news and we've got cognitive biases and that's a whole other thing that's that's the challenge how not to tell the better story but how to cut through the firewall in the reader's brain as it were i guess cool i think that's a good place to end um thanks for coming in paul we've been chatting to uh, paul bergwitz from edges um you'll be hearing more about him in the in the coming weeks up to elections and post elections well we, i'm sure we'll be have some nice opportunities to crunch some numbers um i'm scott peter smith head of multimedia at Blackstar, and thanks for listening You've been listening to Final Take, a multimedia live production from the Tissot Blackstock Group, publishers of the Sunday Times, Business Day, and Financial Mail.